0: Hey, Collective Family! I hope that today has greeted you with life and refreshment. And I am grateful to be with you, even through distance, um, as we seek to know more about who we are and who God is. I'm going to read to us from 1 Kings chapter 19, when the Lord appears to Elijah. So God said to Elijah, Go out and stand on the mountain he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. When God whispers. So, when it comes to meeting with God, I wonder if our expectations around God answering are a little bit skewed. I know for me that there have been times where I put a lot of weight into how I'm doing or how good. I'm feeling or connecting with God, and that's the basis of whether or not God is going to talk with me or meet with me. So for you, you know, if you're feeling disconnected or you're feeling some shame um, or fear, do you ever feel like God won't speak to you or is less likely to speak to you? Like somehow we have to deserve it or even earn our way back into God's favor in order for God to meet with us? And it makes sense that we have these kinds of thoughts because our human relationships are based a lot on earning approval or um, how we act kind of determines how we're treated, which completely makes sense. you know. Um, and it seems, though, that our understanding of God is based on how human relationships operate instead of that God is on this completely different plane because of the reckless love with which God cares for us. So that kind of unconditional love and the fact that God is not codependent really makes our connection with God so different. And that is unlike any or most of our other relationships. So when God declares commitment to us and love for us, we still act as if this love is fragile and we have to be very careful with it because we can mess it up so easily. But the stories in the Old Testament, as crazy as they are, show a God who meets with us because that's who God is. God speaks comfort when people are hurting. God speaks when God is mad. God speaks to draw us back to who we are because God is a God of connection. We've talked about how it's not uh, how willing we are to hear, but God's willingness to speak. And we definitely see that in this story as Elijah is with god at mount horeb so elijah a little bit of background is a prophet during a very difficult time in israel's history and like most of god's prophets he was living in the midst of people who were disconnected from god and really didn't appreciate a guy telling them that they were being selfish or evil or not living as god intends for them to live so Rob and I had a professor in seminary, Dr. Nan, and she would always tell us that the purpose of Old Testament prophets was to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. And afflicting the comfortable is definitely the life work of Elijah, according to First and Second Kings. He was called by King Ahab, the Troubler of Israel, and he was always lighting fire under Israel to draw them back to worship and, and know the God who had created them. So our text about God meeting with Elijah on the mountain is powerful and poignant in any context, but even more so when we see it in its larger setting. And uh, just to save you guys some time so that you can get to the Golden Corral or Lubies for lunch before the other online churches get out. That was a joke. I made this, uh, this brief history of what's going on in Elijah's world. Is it backwards for you? Okay. So Elijah... Uh, was dealing with a a bad king, and it was in a series of bad kings. So Israel had lots of people who led um, Israel away from worshiping God. And so King Ahab is the king while Elijah is first introduced as prophet. And the text says that King Ahab was worse than all the other kings before him and did things like make wooden images and, quote, did more to provoke the Lord God to anger than any of the kings of Israel who were before him. And he also married Jezebel, who spread the practice of worshiping Baal and the false prophet's words to Israel, who then began to practice not just Baal worship, but also tried to keep some of that Yahweh worship going on. This meant that God was very, very angry. Okay, we all got that. So, Elijah comes on the scene to set Israel straight in a series of very dramatic events, starting with the declaration of a drought, in which Elijah says to King Ahab, there's not going to be any rain until I pray for there to be rain, because you are the worst. That's my paraphrase. Not only that, but he challenges the uh, false prophets of Baal to a God showdown as a way to settle once and for all that Yahweh is the true God. So the hundreds of prophets of Baal and the prophet Elijah each build an altar and the true God will rain down fire to consume the offering. So after hours and hours of the false prophets yelling, prophesying, self-mutilating, blood squirting out, all in an attempt to get the uh, false god to answer them. And this answer never comes, and Baal never pays attention. So then Elijah takes his turn. He sets up his altar with the 12 stones representing the 12 tribes of Israel and floods with 12 barrelfuls of water the entire altar. And this is during a drought, right? So he must be pretty confident in his god's ability to wow the crowds. So uh, calls out to the God of Israel who rains down fire, consuming not just the offering, but also the altar and licks up every single bit of water. So all of Israel is present and sees the truth of God's power. And uh, there is no question in this about who has the power and the authority is it baal or is it god and then elijah prays for rain and rain comes and in this moment it's indisputable the rain the fire god is god right and then elijah receives a death threat from jezebel If you'll recall, she is the worst. And despite Elijah's knowledge of God's ability to protect, despite the fact that he has had firsthand experience of God protecting him, he becomes paralyzed by fear and runs away for his life. So God has cared for Elijah through ravens and a widow and taking care of him and guided him and spoken. And Elijah has always said yes. But there's something about this moment that he runs for his life And he hides under a scrubby tree in Horeb. And in that place he prays to die. He prays, It is enough, Lord, take away my life. He had fought against these false gods. He had lived out this loyalty to Yahweh. He knew that if Israel connected to any other fake God, but you know, instead of Yahweh, that it's never going to work. And he knew that Israel belonged to God and would only know life as they lived out of that connection. The Baal anger not only um, uh, caused problems with, with Jezebel, but also with the other prophets who had suffered as a result of that. But God was going to fight to keep Israel who they were meant to be. And so Elijah fought tirelessly. And God took care of him through the fight. And even though along the journey his life was in jeopardy, God told him to stand before the king. Elijah stood before the king. God told him to stand on a mountain, call down fire. He did it. But after God's dramatic and spectacular victory in Mount Carmel, maybe Elijah was hoping he would get some kind of a break. How does he go from seeing the spectacular dramatic to praying to die, you know, running away? But maybe it was that he hoped that since Yahweh's name had been vindicated, that it was vindicated for good. But after that, Ahab was still Ahab, Jezebel was still Jezebel, and life was still life. I'm assuming he didn't expect after all of that some kind of death threat. No wonder he was tired. The amazing part of the story is that God doesn't condemn Elijah for running away and praying to die. Instead, God feeds Elijah and restores Elijah's strength. And then after 40 days in the wilderness, we come to our text where God speaks to Elijah in the mountain. And the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant. They've torn down your altars and they put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left. And now they are trying to kill me too. And the Lord said, go out and stand in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. So here's what's happening. Obviously, Elijah is in need of some kind of encounter with God. And we would expect it to match the dramatic and spectacular ways in which God already has. And the way that God shows up in the powerful wind that tears the mountains apart and the um, earthquake and the fire, it makes sense. And those are part of the presence of God. But that's not the way in which God intends to connect at that moment with Elijah. After the earthquake came the fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And then after the fire came a soft murmur, a gentle whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he knew. So when when Elijah had been up against these huge battles, God had spoken in fire. God had answered Elijah's prayer with rain to break the three and a half year drought the Lord passed by in the form of an earthquake and the fire and wind because God is the God of the natural elements and these are ways in which Elijah knew God could show up I mean he had seen the downpour of rain he'd seen the storm and the fire and oh the fire he knew the fire and that God was the God of fire right But in this moment, Elijah needed another way in which God would connect with him. So Elijah answers this question, what are you doing here? By talking about how he's zealous for the Lord, that he's jealous for God's honor, and that Israel has gone and worshiped false gods. He keeps talking about how he feels alone and how now they're after me. And I don't feel like these are words of self-pity. You know, this is This is not coming from a place of feeling sorry for himself as much as just fear and anxiety and exhaustion. This is a guy who is experiencing deep soul tiredness. And if you can't relate to any other part of Elijah's story, I'm assuming like me, you can relate to this. I mean, he's trying to make sense of his own passion for God and maybe his own calling as a prophet doesn't seem to match up with what's happening. Things have not turned out the way that he wanted. And so I almost think when God says, what are you doing here? His answer, which feels a little bit more surface level, is basically like, I don't know. I don't know anymore what I'm doing here. I mean, do you know that place? What am I doing here? What, what is it that I'm investing in? I mean, I don't know where I'm going. I don't know if I'm doing it right. And I don't even know what needs to be done. It's soul exhaustion. And we know that feeling. The thing is, Elijah wasn't the only prophet left, but it clearly means that he felt some kind of aloneness, some kind of lack of connection, you know? And in his prophet world, he was so used to God in the dramatic sense. And yet now he needed an interaction with God that only he could hear. Not the fire that everybody saw or the rain that everyone experienced, but a whisper that was for the audience of Elijah. The fiery victory on Mount Carmel was what turned Israel's hearts toward God, but it wouldn't last forever. We know that in the next few chapters of 2 Kings. The intimate moments with God are what sustain us, not the big, explosive, spectacular moments, but the ones in which God passes by and meets with us. And we sense that God is near and cover our face and go to the entrance of the cave to see what this God has to say. The intimate moments, the moments where we get away from the work that we do. We get away from what others say about us. We get away from what we have or what we don't have or all the things that pull us in countless directions, right? And we hear the whisper. Notice that... God does not answer Elijah's concern about being killed by saying, don't worry, it's not going to happen. It's not like he reveals the big spoiler that Elijah actually isn't going to die. And instead, he's going to be taken up into heaven by chariots of fire. Leaves that detail out. But God meets with him and then gives him this word of guidance. After God asks again, how or what are you doing here? Then God says, go back the way you came and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, you're going to anoint Hazael, king over Aram or Syria. Also anoint Jehu, king over Israel and anoint Elisha to succeed you as prophet. Then he explains what's going to happen in the next generation of people who are to come. This is not God taking away the prophetic role of Elijah. It's not that he's saying because you didn't answer this question correctly about what you're doing here. It's more this one day at a time idea. So in AA, we talk about our powerlessness and our dependence on God in the language of one day at a time. So I might not be able to surrender for the rest of my life, but one day at a time, what can I do? And there have been times in my own life when it feels more like it's one minute at a time. So it's surrender for one day at a time and then do the next right thing. There's nothing good that comes from getting caught in the questions of how is this going to end or what we would call future tripping, thinking about things we can't know that are further down the line. So when Elijah is asked, what are you doing here? And he repeats his words of fear and loneliness. It means he can't imagine how this is all going to be fixed. But God doesn't reprimand him for that. God doesn't reprimand him for running. He doesn't correct Elijah's answer. He doesn't decommission him or punish him. His work as a prophet has not come to an end. But at the end of the day, it's the still small voice that comes to Elijah when Elijah wants to quit. But not for a pep talk about his prophetic work. Because God cares about the messenger as much as the message, if not more so. So maybe this encounter wasn't about Elijah the prophet, but Elijah the beloved. Maybe he was so wrapped up in his identity as prophet that he didn't know how to speak about what he was doing outside of that work. He saw himself as a workhorse instead of God's beloved, and he needed to know that he was more than the things that he could do. The name Elijah means Yahweh is my God. Not just Yahweh is my employer but the nearness that comes from an ownership and a sense of belonging, that Yahweh is the one my soul was meant to connect with. Yahweh is the one who strengthens and comforts and speaks and guides, because I am one worthy of love and belonging in the eyes of the Creator God. Yahweh is our God. Sometimes we get this message through fire, other times it's through a whisper, God meets with us when we're fighting injustice and when we're running away. God connects with us when we are bravely facing our challenges or when we're praying to die. The whisper for you may be anything. It may be an unexpected moment or a sense of love or peace. It's a reminder possibly of the movement of God, even when you don't see God moving. Maybe the sense of an active presence when you're paralyzed by fear or don't know what to do, but the still, small voice, the non-dramatic whisper is personal. And when Elijah was at his lowest, that's when he had his most intimate encounter with God. God speaking didn't depend on Elijah changing his response or getting a sense of resolve. It had to do with God's willingness to speak, and in my life, I have seen God do incredible things, and I have seen people um, freed by the Spirit of God and delivered from toxic relationships and addiction and compulsive behavior, and I have also run down a mountain completely terrified. We're a mix of fear and faith. We are the inconsistent ones. We expect God to be inconsistent too, but God is not. God's presence is constant, Emmanuel, God with us. Not something that we can change. Some days are easier than others, but even in our inconsistency, God is. And whether through fire or whisper, God speaks. So may we have hearts that grow more and more tuned to the voice of a God who is for us. Grace and peace to you, my collective family.